Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The House has a new speaker, Louisiana Republican Mike Johnson, a staunchly pro-Trump member who spearheaded efforts to overturn the 2020 election, also opposed the stopgap funding measure that kept government open and also seeks to reduce government spending and opposes Ukraine aid. Divided on what to do next and facing pressure from Washington to go slow, Israel has avoided a full invasion of Gaza, instead making brief forays, as Iran warns America that it will become embroiled in a war if Israel doesn't stop bombing Gaza, where the civilian death toll has soared. That warning hasn't stopped Washington from striking Iranian proxies in Iraq and Syria that wounded 19 American troops. As the world's attention is drawn to the Middle East, Russia has stepped up its attacks on Ukraine, focusing on its own offensive in Avdivka, as Beijing surged forces into the Taiwan Strait and came within 10 feet of a B-52 bomber operating in international airspace over the South China Sea as part of a multinational U.S.-Japan-South Korea exercise. Meanwhile, the Ukrainian war grinds on as winter looms, and Australia's Prime Minister Antony Albanese makes a state visit to Washington for key meetings and inaugurate Australia's amazing new embassy in Washington, D.C. Joining us today to review the week in Washington and around the world are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson, the President of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Town end of the Center for a New American Security and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, a must for anyone interested in the Transatlantic Alliance, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, welcome back to the show. Jim, thank you very much. You're tanned, rested, and ready after a family sojourn uh, in uh, Hawaii, uh, and very glad you got uh, some time off from the madness that's Washington. Uh, Michael, uh, absolutely uh, fascinating train of events uh, over uh, the past week, the hard right deposed Kevin McCarthy as speaker, uh, then uh, for a whole variety of uh, uh, fractious caucus reasons, uh, rejected uh, two highly uh, experienced candidates who had gotten the nod, uh, uh, Steve Scalise uh, and uh, Mr. Emmer. And finally, an exhausted, you know, and then it looked like the center was surging back by blocking uh, Jim Jordan. Uh, and, uh, and now uh, we have uh, as as some have put it to me, an exhausted GOP caucus who have embraced another hard right member uh, who was backed by Trump, uh, who played a prominent role uh, in uh, um, the, you know, the events around surrounding January 6th and the lead up to that opposed stopgap funding to keep government open, wants uh, deep spending cuts and also opposes uh, Ukraine aid. First, let's get to how Republicans ended up backing a little known six-year member without any committee leadership experience as speaker, because in some respects, and and given normally how we pick speakers, we tend to pick, pick people who've got more experience, a Steve Scalise, a Tom Emmer, somebody like that who's who's been around a while and, and has more experience. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. So I think you know, when we were uh, taping last Friday, uh, they were currently voting on the House floor uh, on the third ballot on Jim Jordan, which he already lost uh, during our show and ended up losing a total of 25 votes uh, by the time they were done, which was his worst performance of all three ballots. Uh, so they went into a, a closed section immediately. And Jordan then asked for a secret ballot 
uh, in that closed session. And while he lost 25 on the floor, he lost 86 in the closed section. Uh, so it became crystal clear that his run for speaker was over uh, and he immediately immediately withdrew. Uh, and right away, House Republicans started the process uh, for uh, a new session. Instead of voting for the weekend, they sent everybody home. And over the weekend, nine candidates threw their hats in the ring and they announced that there would be a uh, candidate forum on Monday night, uh, followed by uh, votes on on Tuesday. And out of the right. nine candidates, the clear front runner was uh, the whip, Tom Emmer. Right. Uh, McCarthy endorsed him right away. Uh, and and Democrats actually signaled that they would be willing to help Emmer on the floor, uh, provided right. they got, you know, again, reasonable uh, assurances that they could uh, get Ukraine and Israel aid on the floor and that they would uh, stick to the negotiated spending limits in the debt ceiling deal. Uh, Republicans did not uh, take that olive branch. Uh, they held a candidate forum on Monday. And then uh, Tuesday, uh, on the fifth round, Tom Emmer emerged as the speaker designate. However, right. uh, there were 20 votes against him. And he needs to get to 217, so he was still short. Uh, and uh, Trump then smelled blood in the water and then went after Emmer. And on right. social media said voting for globalist rhino like Tom Emmer would be a tragic mistake. And he pretty much nuked Tom Emmer's candidacy. Uh, so right. he was speaker designate for all of just over four hours uh, before he withdrew. And But uh, there was a little known congressman who came in second place to Emmer out of those nine, and that was Mike Johnson. So right. the process started again. Some of the same candidates threw their hat in the ring. Uh, some new ones did. And by the, on the third ballot, uh, Mike Johnson uh, emerged uh, victorious. However, there were 34 members that kept voting for someone who was not there, not, not, uh, not one of the candidates that was declared. So Congressman Drew Ferguson asked for a, a roll call vote to figure out who are these people voting for. And 33 of the 34 were voting for Kevin McCarthy because McCarthy was actually privately uh, floating a plan that would actually reinstall him as speaker and make Jim Jordan the assistant speaker. So once that was made clear to everybody else, they all rallied around um, around, around Mike Johnson. Uh, and you're right, they were exhausted. Actually, uh, for the final vote in conference, 22 people were absent because they were just so tired. They just couldn't right. do it anymore. Uh, but Well, uh, and they didn't and they didn't want to vote for this outcome, right? I mean, that that's another factor. Well, I think out of the candidates that were running, Johnson – uh, was really the most appealing, right? Uh, and right. and I think that um, uh, you're right about speakers having you know experience, but I think you know Paul Ryan is someone who really did not have, I think, the requisite experience to be a good speaker because he was always the policy guy, he was the budget guy, he was the ways and means guy, uh, and then was forced into that role. Now, uh, Mike Johnson, um, you know, won on the floor with not a single uh, Republican voting against him. Uh, he won right. you know, 220 to, uh, to 209. Uh, so right. the, the party did come together. But, you know, he has been in leadership. He is the vice chairman of the House Republican Conference. He did serve as the chairman of the Republican Study Committee. And for our listening audience, he's on the House Armed Services Committee, uh, committee he's right. wanted to serve on. And, a, and he's been a very active and engaged member of that right. committee. Uh, so I think from a defense perspective, it's also a very positive thing to have Mike there. Um, let me uh, take you to, and I should I should say that uh, you know you have very uh, deep uh, relationships with a lot of members, and uh, pride yourself on bipartisan uh, friendships, and obviously you're also friends uh, with uh, Mike Mike Johnson uh, as well. Let me take you to the substantive parts of this, right? I mean, what's concerning, and and you saw as as part of our uh, constant week long deliberations. Uh, on this, right? I mean, we we criticized Jim Jordan, who's significantly less popular, by the way, than than Mike Johnson is. Uh, but some of the policies are very similar. He 
you know, Johnson imposed uh, stopgap spending. He wants, uh, a, you know, a temporary funding increase, but only to drive forward more uh, spending cuts. I should say that the current deal that we're under effectively can is going to turn out to an 8% acquisition cut, basically, because we're not going to cut people's pay and a whole bunch of other things, right? We can't curtail operations. So that's where this shortfall is going to come at a time when we need to be arming up. Dove, great piece. On, on why Johnson should prioritize munitions production and, and amp, uh, ramp that up, that piece is in the Hill. Uh, and he also opposes Ukraine aid, right? How is he going to move on all of these agenda items that are near and dear to the hearts of most of the listeners here? And I know every single one of our panelists. So Johnson now finds himself in a different position than he did as a run-of-the-mill member, just as we've seen with Democratic leadership. I mean, for example, someone like Hakeem Jeffries, uh, before he was the Democrats' leader, would vote in favor of the amendment every year on NDAA to cut defense spending by $100 billion. Now, as the leader, I think that's a position he is most likely not going to take. That is an amendment that uh, did not get uh, ruled in order this year, so we'll have to see in the future. But I don't believe that Jeffries and Catherine Clark, who voted for something like that in the past, are, are going to do that now that they're in a leadership position. I think the same holds true for Mike Johnson. Um, and Mike Johnson is going to be given a lot more leeway. Right, first of all, I do not believe now we're going to have a shutdown on November 17th. And I had said before, look, if Jim Jordan was the speaker, we would have no NDAA, no appropriations bills, and a shutdown on November 17th. I think all that is the opposite with Mike Johnson. And the um, the conservatives have already come out pretty much saying that. I mean, House Freedom Caucus uh, Chairman Scott Perry has said that we're, they're going to give him a lot more leeway than they gave uh, to McCarthy, uh, for example, on the CR. Uh, Scott Perry said, if you're using the CR to deal with the appropriations and spending bills that have to get passed, I think people will be forgiving of that. We're in overtime right now, so you can't blame the backup quarterback for the failure of the guys who just came out of the game, right? And Johnson has laid out a very aggressive schedule to get things done, and he's already off to a really good start. The first thing he did was get that uh, resolution passed on, on the House floor in support of Israel that passed uh, 412 to 10, and he got passed the Energy and Water Appropriations Bill yesterday, which was part of his timeline to get that passed this week. Next week, to pass three appropriations bills, the week of November 6th to pass two, the week of November 13th uh, also to pass uh, the remaining three, right? And he said he wants to get NDA done in December, and he's already laid out an aggressive schedule for next year. Uh, to get everything done. And he has said he does not want to break for the August recess unless all 12 appropriations bills are done. And he wants uh, the NDA completed uh, before the August recess as well. So I, I think that the, the, one of the big differences here is that Mike Johnson wants to govern, right? Now, Mike and I disagree on a lot of things politically, right? But the difference here is that Mike Johnson sees the Republican Party as a party of principles, policies, and ideas. We may not agree with all those ideas, but he wants uh, to govern. And I think that's a positive thing uh, for the Congress. But I will uh, say, I too, would, uh, he, he, well, I would wholeheartedly agree with that sentiment, as I think everybody would go. Go ahead, because right. really quickly, we're going to have to hit the Senate and, and jump right. to yeah. a wide world right. uh, on fire. Right. But I uh, just very quickly, he is going to face, you know, obviously a lot, a lot of challenges at the same time. And, and one of which is a dwindling majority, because uh, right now, you know, Republicans were elected with a five-seat majority. They had a four-seat majority with Chris Stewart having resigned from Congress. But now um, it looks like they are going to vote to expel George Santos next week. And they will need two-thirds to do that. And I believe that will be successful. So the Republican right. majority will go from four seats to three seats. And there will continue to be rumors of whether McCarthy is going to stay or not stay. And if he were to leave, uh, that would put the majority down to two seats. Uh, plus, there is going to be a dueling resolutions next week that he's going to have to navigate to where 
Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene has filed a privilege resolution to censure Rashida Tlaib uh, because of the comments she's making against uh, Jews in Israel, um, you know, especially with Rashida Tlaib continuing to insist that it's Israel that bombed the hospital in Gaza, which, of course, we know is not the case. Right. She knows it's not the case, continues to lie about it. A lot of Republicans support that resolution. They wish somebody else was offering that. Democrats are going to offer a resolution to censure her. So a lot of the circus will continue and he will have to navigate that. But I, I, I will say this again, since Mike and I do know each other very well, we disagree on a lot of things, but I, I feel that John, Johnson has a good heart and he wants to do the right thing and he wants to govern and we should give him a chance and see how he does. Uh, really uh, quickly, uh, talk to us about President Biden's $106 billion uh, plan and the support in the Senate. It's overwhelming, even if Tom Cotton said it's dead on arrival. Uh, give us a sense on how the Senate's going to move on this and whether or not we have to end up breaking up um, these aid packages and separate Ukraine aid from Israel aid, from Taiwan aid, uh, which we can agree was not as much as it should have been. But ultimately, the administration bundled all this together to get it through together. Walk us through how this is going to end up uh, and what uh, Mike Johnson and the Republican price in the House is going to be to get this passed. So a uh, great question, right? And I think I'm not as worried about the Senate because I know the Senate wants to get all these things done. Um, the House is going to be the challenge here. But uh, I do think that this will be broken up. Uh, I think Johnson's been indicating that. Uh, he's obviously in his speech, uh, accepting the gavel, talked about a strong support for Israel. So I think that we're going to see that on the floor uh, on its own, the Israel package. But um, I think we will see the other packages on the floor as well, broken up. And as long as they get to the floor, it's all that matters. Ukraine aid will pass if it gets uh, to the House floor, uh, along with uh, you know the, the, the aid for the Indo-Pacific and, and the border aid. So how they do it, uh, is, uh, is not as is concerning yeah, to me as long House as they stop did. it. Couldn't House it, members it, move to stop it, and then nothing gets considered. If it, if, it, if it gets to the floor, it will pass. There are enough Republicans that will right. team up with Democrats to pass it. Now, does my it larger get to concern, the floor? Uh, well, he's indicating that it will, but my larger concern here, because he's talking about breaking it up. If he breaks it up, let, let's see, right? My larger concern here is all of a sudden uh, the new speaker is talking about offsets. Right. And that is much easier said than done. Uh, yeah. So I don't believe that they will be able to find offsets for any of this, uh, including the Israel package, because uh, finding 14 billion dollars is not that not that easy. Uh, and where would right. that offset come from at a time when we are actually you know, cutting defense spending? Uh, and we're trying to say that we're trying to solve more problems on the domestic side. Well, cutting spending on that side, too, I don't think is going to be helpful beyond where we are on the budget deal. So um, I think. That, that's going to be the rub here, right? But it seems to me right. that the, if they're talking about breaking it up and putting it on the floor, that's one thing. But at the same time, there are Republicans that are going to rebel. There was a group of six House Republicans that yesterday sent a letter to Schumer and McConnell saying that they're concerned that Biden is using Israel's existential struggle as an excuse to force this additional spending uh, through con Congress. And they don't want the Ukraine aid right. uh, considered at all. Uh, and it was signed actually by two members of the Armed Services Committee, Mike Waltz, who's a subcommittee chair, right. and uh, Mark Alford. Now, this letter goes to the Senate. The Senate's going to dismiss it, but it's a key indicator of the problems that we still face in a House-dominated uh, Congress. Uh, it is uh, absolutely fascinating uh, to uh, watch. And we hope, uh, Michael, as always, you use your powers 
to uh, uh, to uh, drive better outcomes uh, among uh, members. That's not a client specific question. That's a national no, observation. It's a national uh, observation. Uh, a quick word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily coverage. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, ultra intelligence and communications sponsors our command and control coverage and GE Aerospace sponsors our air uh, and naval coverage. Uh, Dove, um, I, I want to take you uh, to uh, the the broader question here, right? I mean, if I look at uh, the Chinese are misbehaving, the Russians uh, are misbehaving, the Iranians are misbehaving, and it's only a matter of time before the North Koreans misbehave more. Um, there appear, you know, it's it's hard to believe that there wouldn't have been some cahoots among these four, given how you know, strenuously, they've been meeting with one another, uh, you know, both before, but certainly after uh, this uh, crisis in the Middle East uh, erupted. The president has talked about this as being a, an inflection point and, and tried to assemble these uh, pieces uh, together. Uh, do you think that there's more to this puzzle? You know, is this sort of more active planning among these four or taking advantage uh, of a crisis to each advance their own interests in their own ways? Well, I don't know that it's active planning, say, the way that the Nazis and the uh, fascists of Italy plan together. But it's pretty clear that uh, each one of the, the ones you've mentioned is fully aware of what the others are doing uh, as each of them moves along in the direction that they're going. Uh, mm -hmm. And at the same time, it's very, very clear. Uh, you just heard uh, from uh, Michael about where the speaker might be going. But if if they're talking about anything less than an increase in defense, that sends a signal to all these bad guys that they should keep up what they're doing. I mean, the truth of the matter is, and that's what I wrote about. It's not just about munitions, although I don't know how we come up with the munitions to support Israel, to support Ukraine and to refill our stocks in Europe. But it and goes, supply Taiwan as well. Right. Which is part of supply, the plan. and supply Taiwan. So it's an across the board problem, not just with munitions. And it seems to me that we still have our heads in the sand. The administration has its head in the sand in the sense that it absolutely refuses to see that we could be fighting on more than one front against more than one enemy. But Congress has its head even deeper in the sand because this is not the time to think about cutting defense at all. And so you've got the situation, and I'll give you a concrete example. We have just hit back at the Iranian, uh, uh, militia, Iranian sponsored militias that have been firing again at, at us in Eastern Syria. But the fact of the matter is, that in, during the Biden administration, there have been 103 such attacks and only five responses. And part of the reason that the responses are so few is because we're focusing on China and Russia. And we really don't want to focus on the Middle East. But the Middle East is telling us you can't ignore us. So indeed, what you've got is a situation here that each one of these bad guys is, A, ex as you say, exploiting the situation, but B, fully aware of what the other bad guys are doing. And it's just time for us to come to grips with that. And it's going to mean more defense spending. And that's not something the Republicans are comfortable with. Um, or some and, Democrats. 
I, I would agree with you. And, and as you've noted, right, I mean, more more for Ukraine is important. The question is whether or not it hits that $60 billion number. Jim, um, let me uh, bring you into this. Welcome back uh, and good to have you back. Um, you know, uh, as, as Dove wrote in his great piece, right, 300,000 rounds uh, came out of uh, the uh, two U.S. stockpiles in Israel uh, to go to help Ukraine and are now making a U-turn uh, and going back to Israel because Israel needs uh, equipment uh, as well. Russia has in- accelerated uh, its offensive uh, in Avdivka uh, to try to take pressure off of steady, uh, if slow, Ukrainian advances in the south toward uh, Crimea. Um, the dynamic in the Black Sea is changing, in part because of the brilliant way the Ukrainians have been using drone attacks. Meanwhile, NATO and EU that came together in the wake of Russia's attack on Ukraine appear to be splintering a little bit in the wake of the Hamas terror attacks on Israel. How concerned are you for Ukraine aid and that Kiev is going to get the resources that it needs, not just from the United States, but all of its allies and partners as this new crisis erupts? Well, I'm very worried about that, and I've been worried about that uh, for the past year. I mean, the munitions uh, problem, the shortages that we're seeing, is just a symptom of a larger industrial-based problem, a larger uh, problem coming from not spending enough, both in Europe and, and in the U.S., not spending enough on 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 stocks. Uh, it, and it's hard during peacetime to do that, to justify spending money for ammunition or other things when there's not this threat that's immediate and looming. And that was the case, you know, for the past number of years. But right. now we're flat footed and and uh, Dove has been talking about this. I agree completely with him. Uh, and I think, frankly, uh, this is where Europe and I know we say this all the time and it's not that Europe isn't uh, contributing. They are. But they have got to help fill these gaps as we send munitions to uh, to to Israel. Uh, this is this is going to only increase the, the sucking sound you're going to hear is ammunition being sent of munitions of all types. And I and I also uh, admit that there's a difference in the kinds of munitions that Israel needs versus Ukraine. But there is a lot of overlap as well. Uh, and so I'm very worried about the shortages. It's only going to get worse. And And the answer to it, I think, are two. One is. Uh, Europe, as I mentioned, you know, they have got to find ways to somehow get at least more 155 produced uh, for Ukraine. And the second thing is Ukraine itself. They're doing a lot now with drones. I've been uh, hearing a lot about their homemade drone uh, capability, which seems to be substituting for uh, artillery in a lot of ways. Some of these suicide drones that they're making. So so but but it's got to be a uh, a homegrown in Ukraine. Uh, solution, at least for some of the basic munitions. Uh, this drawdown that was just announced, I guess, yesterday, a lot of that was for air defense and for systems only manufactured in the U.S. So we're going to have to be the, the source for that. And we're coming into the winter, and this is when the Russians are going to start trying to uh, to, te- to attack the uh, uh, the electrical grids and that type of thing right. that provides uh, you know, warmth and that type of thing during the winter. And that's what this air defense munitions uh, support, I'm sure, is, is uh, oriented towards. So bottom line, yes, I'm worried about it. It's only going to get worse. And Europe is going to have to be part of the solution, along with uh, domestic Ukraine production. 
Um, I want to uh, I'm going to come back to you in a moment because I want to get your take, uh, obviously, on uh, the election in Poland and uh, Turkey's uh, Turkey finally agreeing to allow uh, Sweden into the Atlantic Alliance. Although we'll see whether or not Hungary is is going to uh, follow suit. Patrick, um, last week, uh, a Chinese Coast Guard ship shouldered aside a Filipino vessel uh, to keep it uh, to try to keep it from uh, resupplying the Sierra Madre. Uh, on the second Thomas Shoal. Um, That prompted President Biden to remind China that America was obligated to defend its treaty ally. This week, Beijing has surged uh, ships uh, and aircraft uh, into uh, the Taiwan Strait, and a Chinese fighter uh, came within 10 feet of a USB-52 bomber, uh, you know, over international waters in the South China Sea. Uh, Is this business as usual, or is there something different about the way the Chinese are flexing now, because for a lot of people, we are approaching the end of days, right? And if I was China, I'm going to attack right now. Um, it, it doesn't seem like there was a lot of indication China is going to attack right now, in part because it has economic problems and a whole series of other challenges. But from your st- standpoint, is this business as usual or something new? Well, they've been dialing. Well, yeah, I mean, they're definitely dialing up the pressure and and, and making a big power play before Xi Jinping meets with Biden. Um, it's not brand new in the sense that uh, the China Power Report released from DOD recently talked about 180 to 300 cases, if you count allies and partners, of uh, aerial reckless maneuvers. Um, and so they have been dialing this up for, for the last couple of years. But sure, I mean, 10 feet within a B-52 bomber, um, that is not an accident, right? That's a deliberately unsafe maneuver to heighten our fear of collision, our fear they're playing upon. Um, and that's that's one of the American challenges here. We have all this power, but if we are not credible in terms of our ability to threaten to use it, or if we're seen as spread across three theaters, um, it gives opportunity for a country like China, as well as its revisionist uh, partners of Russia and Iran and North Korea, to act up and have their own little rheostats to dial up locally what they're doing. And that's a major complication right now. You don't hear the administration talking about the indivisibility of the three theaters now, <laughs> the way right. they did once uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. That's because we are uh, dangerously spread thin. And when you add in, you know, Dove's excellent piece on munitions, um, the Chinese count those and they know exactly, you know, what we have and what we don't have. So we are in, um, uh, you know, stretched very thin and they know it. And they're trying to exploit that up to some extent. The Chinese, though, don't just want tension. They want to use some of that tension to get a new bargain with the Americans. And frankly, the Biden administration is interested in part in driving a new bargain with China as Wang Yi's in town right now and as Xi Jinping comes to San Francisco. And that's because the balance of power just requires for the United States to break or at least prey upon some of the weak seams that exist between China and Iran or China and North Korea or Russia and North Korea. You know, Those are some of the relationships that the United States wants China to know. You don't in Beijing, you don't want instability. You don't want rampant escalation in any theater. Um, and you don't want instability in Northeast Asia with what Russia might provide North Korea. So make a deal. And you also need economic stability. And meanwhile, China's trying to say, hey, you Americans really desperately don't want a collision. So back right. off, back off Taiwan, back off the Philippines, back off de-risking, you know, and that's the that's the negotiation that's going on. Um, uh, Dove, uh, back uh, to the Middle East. Israeli leaders want to crush Hamas, but haven't invaded yet because they don't know how to eradicate Hamas, nor exactly what to do with Gaza after 
the operation. Washington is urging against an invasion uh, until more hostages are freed beyond the four uh, that uh, have been released so far, uh, thanks to negotiations involving the United States, Egypt, and Qatar. Uh, meanwhile, Iran is saying that all the hostages should be released if uh, and Israel uh, effectively empties all 6,000 Palestinians from its jail. Jails, you know, uh, Gilad Shalit um, was exchanged for a thousand prisoners. So 220 Israelis ought to be worth something, uh, ultimately. And then yesterday, Iran's uh, foreign minister, Hussein Amir Abdullah, uh, was uh, speaking at the UN and issued a warning in English uh, to Washington, saying that there will be a wider war if Israel doesn't stop bombing uh, Gaza. Um Israel accelerated its bombings and and the United States struck Iranian proxies in Syria and Iraq. Where is this going? And how, you know, and at what point do, um, because of the rising civilian toll in Gaza, at what point do all the Arab nations that have been warming up to Israel have to break, especially the Abraham Accord countries and, and even Egypt and Jordan at some point, because this is a confrontation that is enraging populations in both Egypt and in Jordan that that could prove very damaging. You know, sort of where are we and where are we going? Well, um, let's start. Let's start with Iran. Um, I believe the Iranians are bluffing because the truth of the matter is, who do they think they're threatening? The United States? I mean, come on. Uh, they clearly want to exact as much as they can out of this crisis. Um, not surprising. They'll keep encouraging Hamas. Uh, but the reality is they, have, they haven't they have hit Americans directly. They keep using their proxies. And so we responded. There was another incident, I believe, this morning or yesterday evening. Um, none of our people were hurt, thank God. But another incident, they keep using drones and mortars and so on. But the hitting is, is done not by their people. It's done by their proxies. And as long as it's done by their proxies, I think, frankly, um, I don't want to use uh, an expletive on, on the air, but frankly, what? let me just put it this way. The foreign minister is blowing smoke. He can blow it in any language he wants. Um, as for the, uh, the Arab countries and the street, truth of the matter is the streets exploded already. And it's not going to matter whether it's 5,000 killed or 10,000 killed or whatever. Remember, those are only Hamas numbers. And our, our own people are saying you can't trust Hamas numbers, which, right. is, frankly, is true. Here's the real problem. The, the Israeli uh, defense, defense forces have made it clear that the biggest uh, operational center for Hamas is under their biggest hospital in Gaza. And that is a huge dilemma for the Israelis. They can't bomb the hospital. And apparently the uh, that operational center is taking in more and more uh, Hamas op, uh, operatives and, and uh, uh, both soldiers and leaders because they're they're scared that they're going to be killed as so many commanders already have been. That's the dilemma for Israel. And apparently the Israelis themselves can't get their act together in terms of whether to go in or not. They had uh, they did send in some tanks. It was just a, 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 a kind of in and out thing. Um, but they still haven't figured out what to do. I think they're, frankly, I think they're waiting to see how many more hostages they can get out, which frankly is the smart thing. And they know they'll get pressure from uh, the international community, particularly the United Nations. There's been this big flack with the uh, secretary general. Um, 
what worries me uh, as much as as what they do with the hospital and and the command center under it is I don't get a sense, and I've written about this too, that they really have thought about what we in America would call phase four, that they have not thought about, okay, what happens the day after? And to me, that's a major issue. And it's not just something the United States can solve for them. Uh, And they need, and the more, frankly, they reach out to the Arab world to talk about how Gaza gets reconstructed, the more likely it is they'll be able to still keep those uh, Abraham Accord partners and allies in Jordan and Egypt on their side. The longer they don't do that, the more likely it is something's going to break. Um, and uh, very uh, quickly, because I've got to get to Jim uh, and Patrick as well for the rest of the world, but uh, real quick on the West Bank. Um it has been uh, a deadly series of attacks by settlers uh, to sort of depopulate uh, parts of the West Bank of Palestinians. Um, this has been a sore point. Um, the, the army has been there to protect settlers who are misbehaving, uh, un- unfortunately. And at this point, Yaha uh, Sinwar, the Hamas leader, is overwhelmingly outpolling. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority. At what point does that get unhinged? Because the PA is still cooperating with Israel on security operations in the West Bank. But at some point, that's going to stop, too. Well, the buck stops with Netanyahu. And Netanyahu, by the way, is pretty much AWOL. You don't hear from him, no press conference, no nothing. Um, And you got to also remember that a lot of these soldiers are West Bankers, uh, are settlers themselves. And some of them have been sitting back while the West, while the settlers go nuts. Uh, clearly, this is something the United States can do. We have not really pressured Netanyahu at all. And what we need to tell him is, you better stop this. You better stop settlement expansion for the at least for the time being. And this better, you better cut this out. We have not. If if we've done it, we've done it so privately that nobody knows about it. Right. Um, this is leverage we do have on Netanyahu, and he needs us. He needs us to resupply him. This is the last, the worst time in the world for him to hear from the United States that we're going to cut back on anything. So this is the time we pressure him. And unless we do that, I'm afraid you're right. Things are going to go really bad. Uh, in uh, Indeed. Uh, Jim, uh, g- give us uh, your sense. I mean, uh, you know, seeing uh, progress uh, with uh, Turkey on anything is uh, welcome. And uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan has said that he is going to allow Sweden to join NATO, dropping uh, his um, opposition that has forestalled uh, the country uh, from joining. We all predicted that it would likely happen. And uh, the difference is that he is now dropping the ball in Hungary's lap, where Viktor Orban has said, I don't want to be the last guy to rule on this. Uh, is Sweden going to get in at this point, or does Orban throw a wrench in the works at the last minute, given that he's a buddy of Putin's? Yes, I think Sweden will certainly get in. In fact, I'm, I'm, I was a bit surprised and happy in my surprise that um, Erdogan submitted the paperwork to the parliament uh, this early. I thought he was going to do it just a few weeks before the Washington summit in order to have the last squeeze uh, on on Sweden, but instead he's done it uh, uh, early, which is great. Um, and I don't think we're going to have trouble out of Orban. But I I am interested in um, in why uh, Erdogan decided to go ahead and do it now. And I I know a couple things uh, can, certainly must have been playing on this. One is uh, Senator Menendez, of course, 
is no longer the chairman. And, and so he was uh, one of the big players holding back on the uh, approval of the F-16, both uh, spares and support, as well as a new aircraft. And, and so he's no longer the opposition that he was. And I think the paperwork is probably beginning to move. And so so that's good. But I, I'm wondering, though, too, though, it'd be interesting to hear what everyone says. I, I'm wondering if, uh, if, if uh, Erdogan was clearing the decks a little bit. I mean, he lives in a crazy neighborhood. He has already come out, as you've heard, he's come out in full-throated support of Hamas, uh, really contradicting so many of his erstwhile allies uh, and, and others who have a, a different view in terms of, of Hamas. And so, uh, you know, he's declared his position. So, so you know, what is he trying to, what is he doing? Does he, does he feel that he needs to have one thing off his plate as he handles all these other pressures now coming down on him, um, given his neighborhood? I don't know, but I think it is interesting. I hope he doesn't change his mind. I, and I hope the parliament uh, goes ahead and gives it a rubber stamp and it, and it moves. Uh, I hope we're not going to get any kind of legislative back and forth. But um, but anyway, yes, Sweden's going to be in. Sweden's going to be in, be in earlier than we thought, I think. Uh, and that will just give us one more thing to celebrate uh, during the Washington summit this summer. Uh, and I would uh, point out uh, that uh, Dove uh, wrote a piece in The Messenger uh, that it actually depends on what Ben Cardin does with the F-16s and that uh, Cardin, uh, the uh, outgoing uh, 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 Democratic senator from Maryland, has been a little bit noncommittal on that. Let me let me ask you about the implications uh, of uh, the the change in Poland. Uh, we'll see whether Donald uh, Tusk uh, and his coalition are actually going to get in power and whether law and justice uh, is going to allow that uh, shift. Uh, but from your standpoint, what does this mean more broadly? What does it mean for Orban? Uh, obviously, he has another four years in his term. Um, I mean, the big debate is whether or not you can really unwind an illiberal democracy if you've been messing it up for a lot of years. Anyway, what's your what's your sense on this and what's next for liberal regimes or, you know, does Marine Le Pen get elected in France anyway? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, you raise a good point is can you unwind the damage that's been made by a government that's been in a long time as as the Polish uh, PIS party was been in government a long time uh, and began to turn the tone of what democracy looks like in Poland. And I think what we saw by this turnout in Poland uh, and how they voted is that, um, you know, that the people can turn, that just because they're heading down one road for, for 10 years under the leadership of that uh, of that party. Uh, and then uh, then they've decided uh, that that they no longer like this direction. They can turn things. Uh, but but I think your point's well taken in the sense that the new government comes in. Uh, it's not like a light switch, uh, obviously. This new the, uh, Tusk is coming in. It's a new government. It's a new approach. They're putting together their coalition, et cetera. So how how easy is it to really turn that super tanker uh, around? Uh, right. You know, how much uh, how difficult is it? But the good news is that the people spoke uh, and, and it was obvious that uh, where the government, the previous government was going was not where they wanted to go in this anti-democratic. Right. Um, uh, direction. And so they were able to turn things around. And I think if anything, Le Pen or Orban or others, uh, I think that this is a message to them too, that don't think because you've been in power a long time and you're heading in a certain direction that the people won't rise up at the ballot box and turn it around uh, on you too. 
So, uh, so I think I think overall where we are right now, I'm very pleased that the with, with the Polish people and the turnout and the vote, and I've got uh, I've got faith that this new government will be able to begin to turn that super tanker around. It's going to take some time, but I think there's there's reasons to be happy at least in this corner of Europe. Well, I can uh, I can tell that Polish American friends of mine are very very happy. Uh, many of them with uh, this outcome. Just a quick reminder for our audience to check out our weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace, uh, that is uh, co-hosted by uh, J.J. Gertler and uh, yours uh, truly. Uh, Patrick, um, the very busy week uh, in uh, obviously in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, Let's talk about Li uh, Keqing, uh, who passed away, as well as the firing of General Li Shangfu, uh, right? I mean, he had been unseen for more than two months, and, and he has now been formally fired. What did these two developments mean? Because before he got ill, Li was seen as a more liberal-minded potential successor to Xi. Uh, and then, unfortunately... He sort of fell out of the picture for a variety of reasons. Talk, talk to us about these two milestones. Sure. Uh, different implications. I mean, Li Keqiang, the former uh, premier, uh, his sudden death from a heart attack creates uh, an interesting challenge for the Chinese Communist Party and whether the grief that it will be outpouring uh, in the will it, will it reflect badly on Xi or will it kind of reinforce his centralized control? I think those are the questions. Um, I think the Australian Richard McGregor had a great quote in the New York Times today that some uh, my view as well, which was that Li Keqiang, while he he potentially was the economic reformer compared to Xi Jinping, he ultimately really was just the symbol of the Xi Jinping era in which putative reformers like Li were sidelined and stripped of agency. And that's the problem, that Xi Jinping has so uh, stripped down the potential for um, uh, economic reforms that it's very hard for China to both climb back in toward cooperation on economics, but also um, it's opened up uh, challenges to his leadership. We'll see whether any of those materialize. I think Li Shangfu, the former defense minister, the fact that they finally formalized uh, his dismissal, but didn't explain about the anti-corruption or whatever the investigation is that's ongoing for him, um, it, it shows that Xi Jinping uh, will not tolerate um, anybody getting out of line. Uh, he wants to bring the PLA fully under the party and under his leadership. And he's clearly not there yet. Um, so it raises still questions about the PLA and the trust that she has in the PLA. But at the same time, he's getting control. Um, and it'll be interesting to see whether in advance of the Shangshan Forum, their answer to the Shangri-La Dialogue, which happens every year in Be Beijing, and it's going to be happening beginning on Sunday night, um, it'll be interesting whether they make any overture toward the United States to say, OK, let's let's ramp up the mill-to-mill -mill discussions that you want to, the military-to-military -military dialogue. Um, not that it'll necessarily lead to any new breakthroughs, but it'll make the Americans feel better. And the, in, in right. these tests in the South China Sea and around Taiwan, they're partly in, you know, driving up American interest and demand for these kind of guardrails. Um, I, well, I want to take you uh, to uh, Anthony uh, Albanese's uh, state uh, visit. Uh, the president of the United States sends a lot of signals. He doesn't do a lot of state visits, and that further accentuates the ones uh, that he is uh, doing. And unfortunately, his visit was overshadowed uh, by 
the tragedy uh, unfolding uh, in the Middle East. What did he accomplish uh, on this visit? And did he accomplish all that he wanted to accomplish, given how critically important uh, the U.S.-Australia relationship is and indeed has been for more than a century of mateship, uh, as Aussies like to point out? Yeah, and in war in the Middle East as a way of uh, sucking out the uh, oxygen of the room. So the ideal, uh, the timing wasn't ideal, but you've got to navigate these uh, sort of shoals of, uh, of circumstance. And I think Prime Minister Albanese uh, demonstrated his twin sides of the coin, which is one, Australia is the steadfast ally. Um, you know, AUKUS, we're moving ahead. He's looking forward to delivery of the submarines. He was impressed with the bipartisan support. Um, the quad, he says, look, I did that on day one. I'm I'm using the quad to 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 rearrange the architecture in the region with the United States and India and, and uh, Japan um, and other other countries in the region. Um, and also he condemned unequivocally the atrocities by Hamas. So, you know, steadfast ally. But on the other side of the coin, Vago, the middle power, we are the constructive middle power. And I'm about to head to China, by the way, for the first time an Australian prime minister will be in China from seven years. Um, and uh, rearrange that relationship. And he, he evoked, at the State Department yesterday, he evoked the Cuban Missile Crisis and said, look, we have an obligation to make sure that the big powers don't uh, head into co conflict. Um, and he talked about leadership, and he praised President Biden for his providing wisdom and solace at the same time to the Israelis. You know, he's, he's sending signals that, um, that as a middle power, they can't afford for China and the United States to have a, a real conflict. So that was an interesting, and I think he achieved that message, um, but it's all somewhat uh, muted considering what's happening in the real world, in the Middle East, uh, in, in Ukraine with Russia and, and elsewhere. Um, let me uh, take you to one last question. Uh, we uh, you know, talk a lot about what Taiwan ought to be doing and what we want Taiwan to be doing. Uh, and then there is what Taiwan wants to do. Uh, and what Taiwan's new leadership may do. Obviously, uh, it is a three-way race, uh, right? I mean, historically, it's always a two-way race between the Kuomintang and the Democratic People's Party, the DPP. DPP, uh, you know, obviously KMT wanting unification with China uh, and DPP wanting uh, Taiwan to uh, have a more sovereign uh, future, uh, you know, not uh, in uh, Taiwan, uh, not in China's orbit, even if uh, it seeks uh, a degree of economic and an important uh, amount of economic cooperation with China. You now have a new party, the Taiwan People's Party by uh, Ku Wenju, uh, who was a former uh, Taipei mayor. Uh, and it looks like uh, the KMT and the TPP are going to strike a deal to try to unseat the DPP, um, right? So one is pro-unification. TPP a little bit clearer, wants something less than unification, but as they say, closer relations, a little vague uh, with uh, Beijing. How does this end up playing out? Because right in the election, we're just a couple of weeks away before the zone of whether or not these two parties can get together, can get together. What could this election mean ultimately um, for Taiwan and effectively American strategy for it? We might want them to be a porcupine. We might want them to fight for their, quote, sovereignty, not if the leaders don't want that. It's getting close. We're within three months of this election now. And if that coalition comes together against the ruling DPP, it'll come together probably in December. It won't, it'll be almost at the last minute, um, maybe in late November. But uh, we'll know in a few weeks whether they're going to get their act together and unify. I think it's a, it's a big hurdle because it's very hard to uh, sublimate your political goals 
uh, for the idea that uh, this is the way to win. Meanwhile, you say it's a three-way race, but really it's a four-way race because the Foxconn founders uh, entrance. Oh, that's into right. The that's race. right. Yeah. And, and the Chinese totally forgot the, about him. And the Chinese are not happy, and they're punishing. They're punishing Foxconn's uh, businesses in China on the mainland, actually investigating them for tax evasion and other things right. that are clearly politically motivated because they're not happy with um, him diluting the anti-DPP vote because they want anything. Uh, China wants to keep the DPP from winning power again because they see them as too independent minded and they want to push back in the other direction. We just it's too early to tell which way it's going. I mean, at the at, you know. The election were today. The DPP gets reelected, um, and uh, they stay on essentially the same course they've been. Your bigger question is to what will the Taiwan people do? What will the Taiwan government and the people do? Um, is a fair question that we don't know the answer to. But they also look at us and say, America, how reliable are you? Are you really going to be with us? You know, even Biden, right. you know, will he be with us? Can he be with us? And I think those are the the questions that uh, are unanswerable at this point, and they'll be contingent. And uh, strategy is contingent; it depends on the circumstances, and and we'll have to see how this plays out. The Chinese obviously want to create uh, challenges for support. So when I read proceedings, uh, you know, the Naval Institute proceedings t uh, this week about the idea of putting those Marines from Okinawa, shifting some over to Taiwan, that's exactly the kind of uh, issue that is a real uh, red line issue for the Chinese. Um, and it's why you have some people like Oriana Mastro, uh, who's seen as more conservative than the more liberal pro-China right. uh, watchers, you know, talking about we need to do more to reassure China. And that's where the Biden administration is, right. I think, right now, trying to go into this summit to reassure China. The problem with that is that, you know, we are so strong. It's great when you're restrained, when you're strong. But if you're not credibly able to use that power then do you really have the leverage? And how much leverage do we have is the question right now. That is the burning question for the United States decision makers right now, whether you're dealing with Taiwan, whether you're dealing with the Middle East, whether you're dealing with Russia, do we have sufficient leverage? And if we don't, how do we get more leverage right now? Uh, indeed. And, uh, you know, that uh, mirrors uh, The Economist's uh, cover story right this week uh, about that the United States could actually, depending on how it plays uh, its cards in the Middle East, can either come out of this with more aggregate power or actually less uh, power, right? At the end of the day, it's as much about the aircraft carrier and and your uh, willingness uh, to use it. Uh, everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. An absolute uh, pleasure, uh, Jim. Uh, welcome back. Already looking forward to the conversation next week. Hope you all have a great restful weekend and a great week, and we'll see you again uh, next week. And as, uh, thanks to the audience for joining us, as you do every day and every week for this and other uh, programs. And a very special thanks to Bill uh, and all of our sponsors for their generous sponsorship that makes this program uh, possible each week. Hope everybody has a great weekend and tune in again Sunday for uh, the Business Roundtable, where uh, the gang will be back together again this week. Have a great weekend, great day, and we'll see you on Sunday.